You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. In 2 Samuel chapter 1 is where we will be this morning. And as we think about the Christian church and the Christian faith, the hope of Christianity depends on the fall and the rise of its king. The Lord Jesus died and he rose again. Jesus' death at the hands of his enemies provided atonement that we desperately needed. He provided forgiveness for sinners like us. <laughs> Jesus is the king who was slain, but he rose again. He resurrected, and his resurrection reveals Jesus to be the victorious, the conquering, the king. Jesus is certainly the king who lives. As we think about the establishment of the monarchy of Israel that has been described over the course of 1 Samuel, it has set for us the redemptive and indeed royal pattern that Jesus himself fulfills. As we'll see today, the monarchy of Saul will fall in order for the monarchy of David to rise. Though Israel wanted to have a king like all the nations in Saul, God anointed his king, his king David. And David sets the pattern. He sets the type by which Jesus would fulfill in the coming of Christ. Saul, remember, was elected as a sort of Christ. Remember, Christ just simply means anointed one. And Saul was christened by Samuel, anointed with oil to be king over Israel. But but as a sort of Christ, Saul has proved to be a disappointment. Saul's eulogy, if you remember in 1 Samuel, was actually written back at the end of 1 Samuel 14. And in 1 Samuel 15, what happens? The kingship of Saul dies. He is rejected by the Lord as the king because of his blatant disobedience to the Lord's command. And so as Saul, at the end of 1 Samuel 15, watches Samuel walk away with a piece of the prophet's robe in his hand, so will the Lord tear Saul's kingdom away from him. After 1 Samuel 15, Saul is functionally a dead man walking. After he descends into the madness and delusions and as he spirals into paranoia and as he grows increasingly obsessive over his murderous hunt for David, over the course of these last several chapters, we've just been waiting for Saul's inevitable end. We know it's coming, just simply a matter of time. And so now, today, as we come to the end of 1 Samuel, we come to the tragic conclusion of the fall of King Saul. Written in 1 Samuel chapter 31, as we will see, as a cold and distant news report. In the final week of Saul's life, you remember from a few weeks ago before Easter, described over these last few chapters, the the scene has been set here for Saul's fall and his death. But as we have seen, the, the fall of Saul means the rise of David. Now remember, David was taking refuge in Philistine territory in a town called Ziklag. And he almost got swept into this upcoming battle 
with the Philistines joining their side to fight against Saul and Israel, but the Lord spared him of that. You remember the Philistine kings didn't trust taking Saul's ex-general to fight alongside of them against Saul. So they sent David back to Ziklag. And remember, once David arrived back at Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites had plundered the city, taken captive all of the women and children. And then David goes in valiant victory, rescuing all. He saves all. He defeats the Amalekites. No one was missing. And around the time of David's victory, in fact, perhaps on that same day, Saul's trembling before the Philistines as they gather the troops for war. The night before was, the night before, uh, 1 Samuel 31 was recorded earlier as we see how the desperate Saul snuck around the Philistine encampment at Shunem to consult the medium of Endor. And as the night before he conjures up Samuel, deceased, Samuel rebukes Saul for violating God's law by resorting to necromancy. And he gives Saul a final definitive word of God's judgment. Tomorrow, Saul, on the battlefield, you will die. So we know what's coming as we come to chapter 31, don't we? We're going to read the battle reports of what happened. And we expect, as we'll find out, Saul's corpse lying on that battlefield. Let's read, starting in chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the son of Saul, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The passage reads so far almost exactly like a news bulletin. Just the facts. There's no commentary here given by the narrator. Just the cold, bleak, and horrific news of Israel's utter and crushing defeat at the hands of the Philistines. As we read the battle, the armies came out to meet, but the Philistines apparently rather quickly overwhelmed them as they were most likely fighting at the start of the battle in some sort of open battlefield, the Philistine war technology, particularly their feared chariots, would have easily crushed the militia of Israel. And so Israel, rather quickly in the battle, began to flee from the Philistines. They fled the battle. Israel fleeing in battle is only described in two other occasions in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 17, Israel fled before the champion Goliath, but David emerged, giving Saul and Israel the victory. But as we know, there's no David coming to the rescue this time, is there? 
the Lord has providentially sent David far, far away down south. The second instance of Israel fleeing from battle comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4, the battle of Aphek, where Hophni and Phinehas brings the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines. And at the battle of Aphek, what was God doing? He was exercising his judgment over the house of the high priest, Eli. But now with Saul and his armies fleeing to Mount Gilboa, what is God doing? He is exercising his judgment over the house of the king. So as Israel flees from battle, they attempt to retreat to Mount Gilboa, hoping that as they get to higher terrain, that it might slow down the Philistine chariots. But a fleeing army is easy shooting for skilled archers. And the battle, we're described here, is a bloodbath. Fleeing Israel was now trapped on the side of Mount Gilboa, cut off and surrounded by the chariots, and with the army of the Philistines standing at the base of the mountain, just flinging arrows into its side. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. And like a beehive, what would have happened, they would, the armies of Israel would have gathered around its king. It was common military practice to to stand around and to guard his king, to try to protect him at all costs. But the inner ring just begins to collapse as the arrows come. And eventually they strike Saul and his sons. The Philistine, we're we're told, struck down all of Saul's sons that were in the battle, Jonathan, Abinadab, Malachi, Shua. There's one other son of Saul remaining, Ishbosheth, but we'll, we'll talk about him more in coming weeks. He will be an obstacle when it comes to David's uniting of the kingdom. We're not sure why he's not in battle, but he's not. But on the battlefield, we see the house of Saul cut down. And imagine, as Saul sees the bodies of his sons all around him, and as the arrows of the Philistine archers are now in his flesh, I'm sure the words of the conjured Samuel from the night before came into his mind. Saul was under divine judgment, forsaken under the wrath of God. And notice what Saul doesn't do. At least it's not described here in any way. He doesn't call out to the Lord, does he? Not at all. There's no prayer to God in his moment of desperation as David would pray and as David's son pray. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Saul doesn't do that. Even at his very last moment, Saul does not repent. He does not cry out to God. He simply accepts his abandonment. This king of dereliction will not cry out to God in humility and contrition. In fact, the name of God doesn't even show up in this final chapter of 1 Samuel 31. God's absence in this chapter signifies, it's the narrator's cue to us, of God's complete abandonment of Saul and Saul's terrifying acceptance of that abandonment. And so as the badly wounded Saul sees the Philistines pressing around him, he turns to his armor bearer and he asks the armor bearer, he orders him, thrust me with your sword. Saul says, if I'm going to die here on this battlefield, I don't want it to be at the hand of the uncircumcised Philistines. Who knows what they're going to do with my body? So if Saul's going to die, please, please kill me. Take my life. So the Philistines don't. You may remember that Saul had a few armor bearers over the course of his reign. You might remember a long time ago, Saul had an armor bearer from Bethlehem named David. And the armor bearer on the side of Mount Galboa here is a proxy for David. 
in Saul's final moments. Just as David had refused on two occasions to strike the Lord's anointed, so does Saul armor bearer refuse to engage in that request. He rejects the order, I will not comply. So Saul did the deed himself, falling upon his own sword. And as we see the armor bearer's refusal, it's a reminder to us of David's integrity. So after the armor bearer had seen that, that Saul was dead, after he confirmed his death, the armor bearer did the same. And notice verse six, Saul lost everything, everything, including his own life. Look at verse six. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day. You notice the contrast from the chapter prior. Perhaps at the same time, indeed, on the exact same day, in those same moments, as David is rescuing the families of the men from the Amalekites, and not one person is missing, the text says. All were saved by the hand of David, but at that same time, Saul is losing everything. While David's victory leads to a rescue of everyone, Saul leads a disastrous defeat of everyone. So the crushing defeat of Saul marks his kingship as a failure. The people wanted to have a king like all the nations. And why did they want a king? Do you remember? Well, we wanted a king so we have someone to go out and fight our battles and to crush our enemies, to vanquish the Philistine threat. And while early on, we saw that Saul had some success in that. But by the end of his kingship, after this 40 years, the Philistine threat was worse. What described in verse 7, look at it real quickly, it's the reverse of Joshua's conquest. After Saul and the army of Israel's defeat, notice what the people did. They abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. So how should we assess the life of King Saul? What should we think of this complex, tragic, fallen, and rejected king? The author of 1 Samuel doesn't provide any direct commentary in these final moments, but he does help us think about such questions as we watch and describe the journey of Saul's body to its final resting place. We are reminded in this description here of what happens with Saul's body, we're reminded of his promising start, but then it ends with a bleak reminder of his abject failure. Let's, let's read what happens, starting in verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines, what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. After... The Israel's utter defeat, the Philistines roamed the battlefield the next day to survey the damage and to plunder what they could from the corpses. And they discovered that during the course of the battle, <laughs> they had killed 
King Saul. And not just King Saul, but they killed his three sons. It was a great day to be a Philistine. And so what did they do? They cut off Saul's head. They stripped his body naked. Saul led like a king of all the nations, and so he dies like one as well. He led with a spear in his hand like Goliath, and so he lost his head like Goliath too. Saul, who was head and shoulders above all of Israel, is now decapitated back to size. Throughout Saul's decline, we saw him morph as the Goliath of Israel, and now he shares in Goliath's end. But as the Philistines have Saul's head and his armor, they begin, notice what the text says, to send out the good news, <laughs> the good news of the Philistines, informing that everyone, guess what? We killed Israel's king. We killed his sons. We've eliminated his house. And isn't that what scoffers against God do? Don't they rejoice in the falling of God's people? What sort of stories about the church are quick to hit the mainstream headlines? Fallen pastors, blatant hypocrisy, corruption in the church, celebrity pastors who deconstruct the faith they once proclaimed, a former Christian music artist who rejects the faith that they used to sing about. We certainly don't want to cover up the church's problems, but there's a fine line between reporting and rejoicing. The narrator of 1 Samuel reports Saul's tragic fall, but he doesn't rejoice in it. But the Philistines rejoiced. It was good news to them. We are told that they rejoiced and they spread the headlines of Saul's death as that good news and our media, even today, loves to spread the gospel of the Philistines, don't they? Rejoicing over the church's sins, mocking shrinking congregations, heroizing the, the church's defectors, making ex-evangelical a badge of honor. But little did the Philistines know that while they may rejoice in the fall of Israel's king today, a new king will soon rise in victory who will crush the Philistines. And so did the Pharisees rejoice in the death of Jesus on that Good Friday, didn't they? Joining in the gospel of the Philistines, we got him, he's dead, only to be surprised that three days later, what? Jesus rose from the grave. And so will our world be surprised when our ascended king returns for his people. Though he seems absent now in the world, Jesus will return and vindicate his people and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so as a church, we proclaim, not the gospel of the Philistines, we proclaim the gospel of peace in a world that might prefer the gospel of the Philistines. Nevertheless, we keep preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to our Philistine neighbors even as they mock us for the Saul's found among us. Let us endure their scorn, scorn, church. Let's not be surprised by it. And let's pray that as we keep preaching the gospel of peace, of God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be saved. We are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
including scoffing Philistines. The Philistines took Saul's armor as a trophy in their temple, but they fastened the naked body of Saul to the wall of Bethshan. But when the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead had heard what the Philistines did with Saul's body, they intervened and they took Saul's body and the bodies of his son and they buried them properly. The people of Jabesh-Gilead ought to sound familiar to you. You remember in the early days of King Saul's reign and his promising start as king, you may remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, Saul unites Israel together to lead them on a rescue mission to save Jabesh-Gilead from, from Nahash the Ammonite. And the victory of Saul in that battle, rescuing Jabesh-Gilead, was the high point of his kingship. That is where he acted courageously in the Lord to rescue and save God's people. What a promising start for King Saul. But yet, bringing them back up at the end reminds us of Saul's tragic fall. So the people of Jabesh Gilead, they took the bones and they buried them under a tamarisk tree. Tamarisk tree. Where was the last time we read of that in 1 Samuel? Well, we saw it earlier on with a paranoid Saul sitting underneath a tamarisk tree with a spear in his hand, trapped in the delusions of his conspiracies and accusing his men of all turning against him as he is hunting for David's life. It's Saul at his most paranoid, his most neurotic, his most insane. And it's a startling assessment of Saul's life here, isn't it? from the victorious young king at Jabesh Gilead, now to the deranged king sitting under the tamarisk tree. And where does Saul end up? Under that tamarisk tree. Saul's life is a reminder for us all that it's not about how we begin, it is about how we end. Many young people have grand starts. They, they are filled with zeal and excitement and enthusiasm for the Lord. But what happens over time as we age? Over time, the, the weeds of worldly pleasure begin to choke out the word of God. The, the shallow soil of superficial faith prevents the deep rootedness required to endure the scorching of suffering. You are in the early decades of your life Follow the Lord Jesus now. Yes and amen. But prepare yourself now to follow Jesus all the days of your life. Take your discipleship seriously right now, today, so that you will, by God's grace, endure to the end. Plan to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, not just in your 20s, but in your 80s. And for those of you who are in those middle to later years, I'll let you figure out which one you are, are in, okay? Be on guard against the deceitfulness of sin. Resist temptation of the midlife crisis to forsake the wife of your youth for a younger woman. Resist the temptation to become the old curmudgeon in the church, grumpy, embittered, cynical, hard-hearted to those around you. Resist the temptation to grow comfortable in your affluence by overindulging yourself in pleasure and lazily loafing and wasting your life in your last few decades. Resist the temptation to abandon the faith once for all delivered to the saints 
for the new intellectual fad of the hour. Resist the temptation to pride, presumption, and self-reliance, lest you too follow in the footsteps of King Saul. Church, we must, we must depend on the Lord's help. We must finish the race of faith well. For as you age, see to it, work towards it. Keep growing more in love with Jesus. Keep contending for the faith. Keep putting to death your sin. Keep investing yourself in the local church where you can be discipled and strengthened by the means of grace and encouraged to follow Jesus faithfully. Give yourself to the discipleship of others, particularly to the younger generation. Wet your appetite over the decades for heaven. Seek to advance the kingdom of God with your life before the Lord calls you home. And may the Lord who keeps us from stumbling see to it that our bones might not be buried under the tamarisk tree. And so is the end of King Saul. But as he falls, God's king rises. And so at the start of 2 Samuel, the death of Saul is reported to David by a messenger. And it's a strange tale that sounds very familiar to what we just read, but has some peculiar contradictions that raise our suspicions. Let's turn now to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And just a word of reminder, First and 2 Samuel are one book. Right, so we're just continuing on in our exposition here. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where did you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not have lived, not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, David and his men were exhausted after the rescue mission of the Amalekites, destroying them. They were earning some well-deserved rest at their home base in Ziklag. And on the third day after Saul's death, a strange messenger began to approach from the direction of Saul's camp. His clothes were torn, dirt was on his head. And as he approached David, he paid homage to David, seemingly recognizing David as the new king of Israel. So David begins to interview the man. Where did you come from? And the man responds, well, I came from Israel's camp. And then David, quite eagerly, wants to know how it went. He hadn't heard. How did it go? Tell me. David's eager to hear what happened to Israel. And the man reports the defeat. 
He reports Saul's death and Jonathan's death. And David presses further. How do you know? How do you know? What's the proof? How do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? At this point of the story, the man shares some suspicious details that cause us to question the truthfulness of his story. Strangely, the man was on Mount Gilboa by chance. Who, by chance, wanders into a battlefield? I'm not sure, but this guy did. And he saw Saul leaning on his spear with chariots and horsemen close upon him. And he says that Saul, still alive, called out to him. And when he answers Saul, the story gets even stranger because the man is revealed to be an Amalekite. An Amalekite. Saul was under the judgment of God for failing to eliminate the Amalekites. And strangely enough, David had just returned rescuing his family from being kidnapped by Amalekites. And what is a random Amalekite just doing passing through the field of a conflict with thousands of soldiers between Israel and the Philistines? It doesn't add up. Nevertheless, the Amalekite continues to continues his story to David. And he tells David that Saul asked him to kill him in his anguish and his sufferings. He said Saul was certain to die. And so the Amalekite pedestrian finished Saul off, took the crown and the armlet as proof, and now stands before David with him as demonstrations of Saul's Now, as I've hinted already, this story doesn't seem to add up. And his story does blatantly contradict the events of Saul's death that the narrator just shared with us in the last chapter. So whenever we notice or whenever we suspect that there might be a contradiction in the Bible, the best way to resolve it is simply by paying closer attention because they resolve themselves. Who's telling the truth? The narrator of Samuel or the Amalekites? Well, we have every reason to believe the narrator and every reason to doubt the Amalekite, don't we? Nevertheless, some have attempted to harmonize both accounts, such as the Jewish historian Josephus, and he suggested to reconcile the two accounts that in 1 Samuel 31, the armor bearer mistakenly thought Saul was dead, and so he went ahead and killed himself, but Saul was not dead yet, and in his anguish, he then asked this random Amalekite to finish him off. So such a harmony between both accounts is plausible, makes sense, it's valid. I think the better resolution is just simply to recognize that the Amalekite is lying through his teeth. He he includes just enough of the truth in order to be convincing, but knowing the true account of what happened in 1 Samuel 31, we can see through him even though David is unable to do so. so. So what most likely happened here with the Amalekite? Well, I think after Saul died in 1 Samuel 31, He was most likely rummaging through the corpses of Israel before the Philistines did the next day. And as he did so, he stumbles across the body of Saul before the Philistines did, and he took the crown and the armlet, and he concocted a master plan to go see David, who he believes will be the next king, and by sharing and confirming the news of Saul's death, he hopes that he could earn favor from David's administration. And so he concocts the lie of euthanizing Saul in order to achieve two effects. First, he hopes that David will be pleased with him for being the one to vanquish his great enemy. Here's the guy who killed Saul. Second, he hopes that David will be pleased by ending Saul's life before the Philistines could further dishonor Saul's life. So he's hoping David is going to be really thrilled, not only that Saul's dead, but that I spared Saul from further embarrassment and further embarrassment from Israel. And so maybe David will be so pleased, he thinks, that he could go to David, pay homage to him, call him Lord, and I could get one of those cushy government jobs in David's administration. But as we'll see, this Amalekite makes 
a major miscalculation in David's response. Let's read how David responds, starting in verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man, man who told him, where did you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David's immediate response to the news of Saul and Jonathan's death is grief. He tears his clothes, which was an expression of sorrow. And he leads his men to do the same. (laughs) David leads Ziklag to public mourning and fasting over this devastating effect. They mourn for Saul. They mourn for Jonathan. They mourn for the people of the Lord. They mourn for the entire house of Israel. What a shocking response from David, isn't it? David doesn't rejoice over the death of the enemy that's been hunting him down for years, but instead he mourns. David exhibits a heart like our Lord who says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked that cares the Lord God? Israel's defeat at Mount Gilboa is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And David rightly and appropriately mourns it. And it's at this point, I'm sure, that the Amalekite watching all this take place begins to get a little worried. The citywide mourning and fasting was not what he expected to witness among the Israeli fugitives on the run from Saul found in a Philistine town called Ziklag. Who are your enemies? You were to name them. You have an ideological rival, an irritating church member, a terrorizing boss, an embittered spouse, a backstabbing friend, a detested politician. And should that enemy come to ruin, what would your response be? Delight? Glee? Celebration? Gloating? If that would be your response, remember Proverbs 24, verse 17 through 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. You see, rejoicing over the fall of others is nothing but sinful and ungodly pride. And it is unbefitting for those who claim to follow Jesus. Jesus is the Savior who tells us to love your enemies, and to do good to those who hate you. He is the king who weeps and laments over Jerusalem, the very city that will soon put him to death. And on the cross, what does Jesus utter? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As those who profess to follow Jesus, who are called to love and to forgive our enemies, Such love means that we ought to mourn at their fall, not rejoice. After David's first response of mourning, he then tells 
and deals with this Amalekite messenger. We're not sure exactly what point in the conversation that his identity as an Amalekite is revealed to David, but once David realizes that this is an Amalekite sojourner, he grows much more serious with the man. Because as a sojourner in Israel, even though he was a foreigner, he was responsible to know and to be subject to the law of Israel. And so this Amalekite should have recognized the sanctity of the kingship of Saul, just as Saul's armor bearer had done. And he should have refused to strike Israel's king. But the Amalekite, by his own admission, confessed to the murder of King Saul. And David believed the Amalekite's story, but David responded in a way that the Amalekite did not expect. He sentences the man to immediate death, execution, capital punishment for killing the Lord's anointed. David's swift action of justice confirms all the more that he will not ascend to the throne by violence or betrayal against Saul and his house. Even after Saul's death, David is still loyal to Saul. As the mourning and the lament continues, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, pens a lament for the nation. The psalm was to be written, we're told, in the book of Jashar. Jashar is an extra-biblical book that has been lost to history. But David's lament is recorded here, preserved for us by the Holy Spirit in Samuel. It's interesting, as we look at First and Second Samuel together, poetry frames this whole book, doesn't it? First Samuel begins with Hannah's prayer. Second Samuel ends with David's psalms. And the structural hinge between First and Second Samuel is marked by David's lament over Saul's house. Let's read it now, starting in verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, <coughs> lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Your mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan, I slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The theme of this lament, of this psalm, functions as a literary envelope called an inclusio. You can see it in the refrain how the mighty have fallen. And as the psalm opens up, David equates Israel's kingship 
with Israel's glory. That the death of a king is a tragedy for the nation. And in verse 20, David laments how, how the Philistines, both, both Gath and Ashkelon are the, the Philistine cities. And he, he, he laments that they might be exulting and rejoicing over the fall of Saul's house. And so because of the tragic news in verse 20, David longs for God to withhold the blessing of rain on the mountain upon which Saul and his house died. Because it was on that mountain, David says, that the shield of the mighty was defiled. In the psalm, they, uh, Saul and Jonathan are described as Israeli weapons of war. And Saul as king was to be a shield for Israel, but now that shield has been defiled. On Gilboa, it came to ruin. Verse 22 describes the death of Saul and Jonathan as a sort of sacrifice. And with David further pressing the metaphor of weaponry with Jonathan as the bow and Saul as the sword. And that grief comes to more pronounced fruition in verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. David reflects on the partnership between the two men. While the daughters are called to weep over Saul in verse 24, the daughters of Israel, David himself weeps for Jonathan. Look at verse 26. David's grief bubbles out of the poetic structure of the psalm of nationwide third-party grief, and it becomes a personal sorrow in verse 26 over Jonathan's death. Notice the pronoun shift. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. David attempts to express how deeply he loved Jonathan as his dear friend. And while David grieves over Saul and Jonathan, there is no doubt that there is a deeper, more gut-wrenching grief that David felt for his friend, Jonathan. But as David closes the song, the refrain returns. How the mighty have fallen. How the weapons of war burned to Saul and Jonathan. How they've perished. As we hear David's song of lament here, I think there are a few things we can learn from it. First, is that as David mourns Saul, he does not take the opportunity to disparage Saul, but to commemorate where he did well. That's a lesson for us. First Samuel focus, focuses intensely on Saul's failures to help us understand why the Lord rejected him as king. But yet during Saul's 40 years, he did do much good. He did. When we assess a life, including a life like Saul, most people don't fit in neatly into defined categories of heroes or villains. And Saul doesn't easily fit neither. Saul, at times, acted the hero. And he certainly, at times, acted the villain. Nevertheless, David eulogizes Saul by overlooking his shortcomings in the composition of the psalm. I think funeral eulogies can be so over the top that we wonder that if the person in the casket even needed Jesus to save them. But our tendency, though, to focus on the positive aspect of a person's life, I think, is a biblical one modeled here for us by David. Second, I think, David's grief and pinning of this psalm demonstrates his worthiness to come into the monarchy. As we've seen in David, he does not relish in Saul's demise. He is sorrowful. He loved Saul. He loved Jonathan. 
He made no attempt to betray them or to commit a violence against them or to lead a conspiracy of treason against them. The Psalm of David, which would have been spread and taught to all Israel, vindicates David from any charge of personal vendetta that he might have had against Saul and his house. And so when it comes to the fall of houses, the fall of Saul's house, David was the lead mourner, forever inscribed in the pinning of this song. And that leads thirdly, third thing we can learn, that David's lament demonstrates how a godly leader publicly shepherds God's people through grief. He initiates the grieving. He leads in it. He is the first to tear his clothes. He models the proper emotional response that the people of Israel are to have in this tragedy. And he calls others to follow in his example. He summons Israel to respond to this news in a godly way, through mourning, through fasting, through sorrow. But David not only initiates the grieving, but godly leaders also articulate people's grief. Working with words is difficult. And many people cannot put words together to express the gut-wrenching mourning that they might be feeling deep within their souls. So one of the ways godly leaders care for God's people, care for those who are grieving, is that they articulate that grief for them, either in speech or in song. They express on behalf of the people the grief that they share together. And the sweet psalmist of Israel pins this song and he orders that it be taught throughout all of Israel so that all of Israel can properly articulate their grief over the fall of Saul's house. And then fourth, David's lament points us to a savior who grieves with us. Jesus was a savior who mourned. He preached in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Perhaps today you find yourself in grief over a lost loved one. It is good news to know that we have a savior who grieves with us and who shepherds us through that grief. We see the tender heart of Christ all throughout the gospels, but I think particularly as he makes his way to Bethany to minister to two sisters, Mary and Martha. And even though Jesus came to raise Lazarus from the grave, he cared for those sisters. He cared for their hearts by joining them in their grief. You remember Jesus in John 11, when he finally makes his way to Bethany after he intentionally delays, he finds a dead Lazarus, he finds everybody crying. Here's what it says in John 11. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Listen to Jesus' response. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. See the heart of Christ. See how he joins us in our weeping. See how deeply moved he is at our grief. Truly, Jesus is the greater David. The Lord Jesus not only grieves with us, but he comforts us. The God of all comfort has come to us incarnate in the person of Jesus. So let me urge you this morning 
to come to him today. Receive his comfort. The precious comforts of Christ come from his gentle and lowly heart. He embraces us in our weakness. He ministers to us in our pain. He aids us in our sorrow. And he has secured the comfort we need by vanquishing sin and by conquering death. And so as we turn from the pseudo comforts of sin that entice us and seduce us, only to further agitate us and afflict us, the Lord Jesus stands ready. The God of all comfort enfleshed to comfort you in the burden of your sorrows and certainly in the burdens of your sins. So come to the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. He invites you to come. Come by faith to Jesus and be ministered to the Lord, the son of David, who is the God of all Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you comfort us in our afflictions. Lord, we know that there are sorrows and griefs that we all share in life, and we are grateful that you are a Savior who weeps with those who weep. But Lord, I know that the greatest sorrow that any one of us will face is not the death of a loved one, but the sorrow over our own sins. And Lord, we are grateful that Jesus comforts us in that preeminent affliction, that preeminent grief. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is sorrowful over their sin, that they might turn from that sin and put their faith in Jesus, the God of all comfort this morning. But Lord, we are grateful, Lord, that Jesus has come and that as he fell in death, so would he rise again, giving us the comfort and the salvation that we so desperately need. Jesus, as we respond to your word, we pray that you would stir our love for Christ, that we would come to him humbly, that we would rejoice in him as our shepherd king. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.